Good evening. Nice to see you tonight. Um, before we jump into our lesson, I want to share with you about our summer study. Um, I told you a couple of weeks ago that we were going to do a summer study in the book of Proverbs, that we were going to do a summer study on wisdom, but we changed our mind. Um, Jamie and I went on a retreat this last uh, couple of days, and we thought about it and prayed about it, and we decided to switch studies. So we're going to do a study on friendship. There's a new study that's come out. It's an if study, and um, just like the wisdom one is, it's a great format. And this study is on, it looks at friendship in the Bible, and then it looks at um, friendship from a biblical perspective. And so um, I just, we're really excited about this study. We think it's going to really be something that's going to get you excited too. So, so here's how our summer study works. We're going to finish out this study first. And tonight when you meet in your groups, your leaders have um, a postcard about the new friendship study. It's called Not Alone. And then there's also another card for you, those of you who might be interested in facilitating a discussion for this new study. So the way it works with the summer study, it's seven weeks, a seven-week commitment. There's um, an early summer, a midsummer, and a late summer set of weeks. And then you decide if you'd like to facilitate a group, then you decide, you know, yes, I'd like to. Here's the place where I'd like to do it. Could be your home, could be a park. Um, the church isn't available in the evenings um, in the summer, so that's not going to be available to us. But maybe, or a friend's home, it can be wherever you'd think would be a great place. Um, and then you just choose the time. Like, I want to, you know, be. I want to be 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. And then once we get our leaders all assembled, we'll put a registration form up on the website, and it'll have your name, and it'll have the dates and time that you've chosen, and then people start to sign up. Or maybe you go gather friends from your neighborhood or from your workplace, however you'd like to do it, but we give an opportunity for then everyone to, to sign up for the groups that fit their schedule. So it's really great. It's kind of a way to stay connected in the Word over the summer, meet some new friends potentially. Maybe even your whole discussion group might want to do it together, but it's a nice connection time for just a short duration, and it's a great study to have good conversation. So that's how that works. Now, tonight, it's a sad night. We're saying goodbye to Moses. Moses, our friend, he was such a good and faithful servant of God, and he left a powerful legacy for the nation of Israel and for us. We've learned so much from Moses these last months together. His legacy is enduring. We've learned so much about God and so much about faith and so much about disobedient people through his legacy. But I want to ask us to think for just a moment, what is your legacy? What are you recording about your life and your relationship with God? What do you want the next generation to know about God's character and about his faithfulness in your life? What wisdom have you gleaned from your mistakes that you'd like to pass on to the next generation? Or what miracles have you seen that you don't want to be forgotten? What answered prayers do you want to remember and do you want your family members to know about? What stories do you want to share? Because I think what we're going to learn tonight as we sort of finish up Moses' life, we're going to learn that the legacy of our lives is formed by our relationship with God. The things that are lasting about our life, the things that are really amazing stories to pass on, are the God stories, are the ways in which we experienced God. And so that's what we're going to glean as we look at Moses in these last chapters of his life. So we're going to look at this study, 
You had eight chapters to study this week. We're just going to look at the last three or four of them. So we're going to start with Moses's prediction in Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 29. This is where Moses begins to prepare Israel for the pitfalls of prosperity that are going to come when they rebel against God in the promised land. It's not a good picture. Then we're going to look at Moses' psalm. This is where he sings a song of praise that foretells their failures and God's discipline. And lastly, we're going to look at Moses' passing, Deuteronomy 32 and 34, where Moses finally dies after viewing the promised land. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's jump in and look at Moses' prediction in Deuteronomy 31. Now you remember that Moses was 80 years old when he was called to lead the Israelites. And now at this point, he's been leading them for 40 years. He's been serving the Lord for 40 years. And finally now, God says it's time for him to step aside and to let Joshua take over. Joshua is going to lead the army now. And God tells him through Moses that Joshua is going to have victory as he goes into the promised land and as he battles the Canaanites. Joshua has been by Moses' side for many, many years. He's been Moses' servant, and now he's going to become Moses' successor. And so in chapter 31, Moses assures Israel that they're going to have the same kind of victory as they go into the promised land as they've had outside the promised land as they've battled the Amorites. If we remember in the story, they had an amazing battle of victory with the Amorites. And Moses is saying, do you remember that battle? You're going to have that same victory as you go into the promised land. But he's saying, you must remember to do all that the Lord commanded. Over and over again, Moses is encouraging and exhorting them to do what the Lord says, to obey his word, to listen, to hear the word of God, and to obey it. And Moses exhorts Israel in Deuteronomy 31.6 by saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. I love that verse. My son Spencer has that verse on a plaque in his room because he had some fears and intimidations when he was a young kid. And my mom got him a plaque, be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And Moses is repeating this over and over again to the people. He's repeating it to the people at large. And then he says it specifically to Joshua. Now I imagine that Joshua just listened so carefully to every word that came out of Moses's mouth. Moses had been his example of faithfulness. Moses had been his mentor. Moses, he knew that what Moses spoke, it was true. He believed Moses. He had seen the the quality of Moses' faith in God. Now, thankfully, Moses, because God decreed it, actually wrote down all of the experiences that he had had with the Israelites. God had told Moses to write this as the word of God as a lasting testimony of God's wisdom and his instructions and his promises. In verse 9, it says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So as we've been studying this whole year, everything we've studied this year has been written by Moses. And so he did as God told him. He wrote it down. And now he was being told that the priests would then read this law to the people every seven years. He would, they would do it during the Feast of Booths, which is that celebration when the Israelites remembered coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land and living in tents in the wilderness. 
Every seven years during that festival, the whole law of testimony would be read to the people. Now, the reason for this is that Israel was not to be like any other nation. All the other nations had gods that they could see. They had little idols that they worshipped. But they didn't have gods that spoke to them. They didn't have gods who revealed anything to them. But Israel had a God who spoke to them, whose presence was with them, who was um, doing miracles and signs among them. It was tangible. It was visible. It was audible. And so now Moses was writing and recording all of this because Israel was to be a people who lived by the spoken word of God. And they, they actually worshiped the God who spoke the very universe into existence. It was by God's word that everything in the world has been created. And now they're being able to live as a people who know the word of God and trust in the word of God and believe and follow his instructions. Moses had been so faithful to record everything God had said and done. And so the people would learn to fear and obey him by hearing his word repeated over and over again. And parents would then teach their children the word of God. Each generation would be raised up in the things of God. And all of these things, as we've studied this year, you remember the, the system of sacrifices. Everything that God had instructed them also pointed forward to the coming Messiah. So each generation would learn God's instructions and learn the history of their people with God, and all of it would point to the coming Messiah, who, as we know, if we go forward to John 1, the Messiah is called the Word of God, the revelation of God. Now, it's amazing to think about what a privilege we have that we don't have to wait every seven years to have the Word of God read to us. We don't have to just listen to the word of God. We actually can hold the word of God in our hands. We can pull it up on our cell phones. We can look at the, on the internet and find the word of God. We have such accessibility to God's word. I wonder if we cherish that privilege of how accessible God's word is to us. Plus, we can come to churches where the word of God is being preached by people who are knowledgeable and are well-learned and, and have access to tools that help them deliver messages of truth and instruction. And we have Bible studies where we spend almost eight months digging deeply into the Pentateuch. And we have podcasts that we can listen to pretty much any preacher, any teacher in the whole world if we want to learn from someone else. It's amazing what advantage we have today to accessibility to God's word. How are you taking advantage of this? And what will you do this summer to stay in the Word of God? Our break from Bible study is nearly four months. That's a long time. What will you do this summer to stay in the Word of God? Well, then finally, God says it's time for Joshua to be commissioned. And so in verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days, of, the, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So the Lord appears um, in a pillar of cloud over the tent of meeting, and Moses and Joshua are there together, and God tells Moses that he's soon going to rest with his fathers, meaning he's soon going to go to heaven, and now it's time to commission Joshua. But before Moses dies, God reveals that the future of Israel, when Joshua takes the people into the promised land, is going to be fraught with difficulty. He tells them in advance it is actually not going to go well as you lead the people into this promised land. And he reveals what's going to happen. 
He says there are actually three things that are going to happen. First, he says the people are going to prostitute themselves to idols. It's interesting that he uses the word prostitute because we know that in Canaan, sexual prostitution was how they worshipped God. So we know there's going to be some depravity in the way that they succumb to idol worship. And then he says that um, they're going to break his covenant. And in breaking that covenant, they're going to ignite God's anger And they're going to engage the curses upon themselves that God has gone into elaborate detail to explain. And then he says that because they will then turn their face upon foreign gods, God is actually going to hide his face from them. So this is a really stark warning about what's going to happen when they turn away from worshiping the one true God and turn to idols. This is why God has been saying, be warned, be warned, be warned. This is a real temptation. You are really vulnerable, and you must remember my word. Obey, obey, obey. And so to help them obey, God then tells Moses that he should write a song with these words in this song so that the people will remember, and they will be forewarned. And it will actually be a witness that God revealed it to them. He forewarned them about this. In verse 19, it says, Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Now we scratch our heads and we say, how does this happen? We have been with these people for months after months after months. We know the miracles of the manna and the quail and the provision of God's presence and the fresh water that he gave them to drink and the promise of this amazing land filled with milk and honey. We say, how will it happen that they'll finally get their inheritance, they'll finally go into the promised land and they'll turn from the one true God? What will, what will cause this? Well, he tells us in verse 20 that it's actually their prosperity and blessings that will cause them to turn away from God. Here God's promised to bless them, and it's actually going to be the blessings, the prosperity that turns their hearts away from God. In verse 20 it says, For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers... And they have eaten and are full and grown fat. They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. It's their prosperity that's going to turn them to idol worship because the the blessings that they receive from God will make them comfortable and will make them proud and make them complacent. And complacency will lead to sin. This reminds me of a prayer that we've been praying over our church here at River West, and there's other churches in town I hear are praying a similar prayer. We've been praying for revival this whole year, and our, our prayer is like, God, will you wake us up from spiritual slumber? Would you wake us up? We don't want to be lulled to sleep spiritually by our comforts and forget our desperate need for God. You know, in in the United States, as we've become increasingly prosperous, we've also become increasingly godless. In our abundance as a people, we've forgotten our dependency upon the Lord and become ungrateful for him, to him for his provisions. And in the same way, the Israelites, they became prosperous in the new land. And as they become prosperous in the new land, they stop being dependent on God for their provisions. They stop being grateful for their blessings. And eventually, they exchange worship of the one true God for the worship of idols. Affluence can be a tempter that leads a nation into rebellion and judgment. 
The same is true for our lives. We must always remember that the antidote to rebellion is actually gratitude. It's remaining in a state of thanksgiving and appreciation for all that God has given to us. When we maintain a posture of humility and gratitude for God's good gifts, we will more easily resist the temptation to become greedy and thankless. And the outcome of that is replacing the worship of God with the idols, worshiping the idols of our culture. Our culture has idols like power and status and money and material gain. And all of these things can lead to pride and rebellion against God. Can you imagine what a sad moment this was as God sort of reveals all of this to Moses and to Joshua, a forewarning? Can you imagine after 40 years of, of leading these people how Moses must have felt? I mean, think about it for just a moment. He has shared with the people all of the evidence of God's provision and blessing. Several times he has literally given his life. He said, take me instead of judging them. He has been willing to lay his own life down so that God would not judge them harshly. He has interceded before the Lord in prayer over and over and over again. And now finally, when God is moving them into this place of inheritance that he's had to wait 40 years, it wasn't his faithlessness that caused the 40 years. It was theirs. He's had to suffer with them for 40 years. And finally, they're getting this land that they could have been to the first year. And he's finding out that this, these people are going to become corrupt, just like the people that already live in the land. And yet, what a blessing that God is going to spare Moses the sight of it that he is actually going to find his rest in the company of God's faithful people. The truth is that our legacy is to know God's word and pass it along to the next generation. We are to know God's word like Moses knew God's word, recorded God's word, and pass it on to the next generation, which is what the whole book of Deuteronomy has been. It's been Moses telling this new, next generation everything that's transpired so that they'll be faithful in their lives. As we've learned this year, knowing God's word is a heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of knowing. It's not just a knowing in our minds so that we can tell the story. It's a knowing in our whole being where we agree with God that it is so. We say, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins on a cross. I agree with what, what God has done. We agree with his plan. We receive the Holy Spirit. We are living now tabernacles of his Holy Spirit. There should be something noticeable and compelling about our lives when we truly believe that it is so. And we have something to share with other people about who God is. Think of all we've learned this year about the character of God. We have one thing to share, at least, that God is holy, that he is set apart, that there's no one like him, that he is worthy of worship and reverence and awe. But let me ask you, who is responsible, if you think for just a moment, of passing God's word along to you? Was it a parent or a grandparent, a friend, an aunt, an uncle? Who was the first one that you can think of that shared the good news about God with you? Have you ever been privileged to have a spiritual mentor in your life? Someone to, to help you understand God's word or to come alongside of you in your journey of faith? If that person is still alive, I want to challenge you to thank that person this week because that person was faithful. You know how hard it is to share news, good news about God with other people. It's risky. Whoever has done that for you, thank them. 
they were being faithful to the calling to pass along the revelation of God to you. But now I want to ask you, who are you passing that along to? Maybe you've got children, grandchildren. That's kind of a natural place to pass along the knowledge of God. But, but maybe, maybe you have a spouse. Maybe even if your spouse isn't a believer, you're revealing something about God to your spouse just by living with the person and sharing things that just ooze out of you as you're learning and growing. But maybe you have in your workplace or in your neighborhood, your community, people who don't have any revelation of God, no knowledge of him. Are you praying for them? Are you praying for those hard hearts to become softened or for opportunities that you can share something, just a little bit? You never know how one little seed planted in a heart can blossom into full-fledged faith. Moses knew how Israel was going to fail over and over again, and yet he obeyed God and he participated with God to give every opportunity for them to choose faith up to the very last breath of his life. And up until the very last breath of our lives, we have an opportunity to share this good news with someone else, even those who seem hopelessly lost. Well, Moses was tasked then with writing a song. And I wanted to spend some time on this song because we didn't spend much time on it in our lesson this week. But there's something really unique about this song that he writes. In this song, he actually reveals a cycle of life that is true for individual human beings, but also true for nations. There's a cycle, and Israel is going to go through this cycle, and it's all going to come out in this song that Moses writes. And I wanted us to just see, and I want us then to go back and identify where are we in this cycle. And then I want to share with you how you can stop the cycle. I have a secret revelation to show you how you can keep from going down the cycle and stay in the good places. But for Moses, he begins by talking about blessing. He's talking to the Israelites. He's created a song. The reason that he's created a song is because songs are easy to remember. We know that when we learn something with music, it sticks with us. The words just start flowing as soon as we hear the tune. And God knows that's how we've been made. And so he takes this whole revelation that he's given to Moses and he says, now I want you to put this in a song. This is going to be a picture of my people and what happens to them. So he starts off with blessing. The first stage is blessing. And he begins by praising God and extolling God's greatness. And he says in verse, chapter 32, verse 1, he says, Give ear, O heavens. And I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. So he's immediately just ascribing greatness to God. And then in verse 4, he goes on to remind Israel of their creator, who is also their faithful rock and whose works are perfect and his ways are just. And he's thinking, surely they'll never turn to unfaithfulness because of who God is. He says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. There's this intimacy of blessing that Israel has because they're in relationship with holy God, the rock, the just one. 
God made Israel into a mighty nation, and he brought his promises to fulfillment through their forefathers. And he's bringing them into this inheritance, and he's apportioning them this land according to their numbers. And Moses goes on to recount how God has been with his people, how he shielded them and cared for them in the desert wilderness, how he's guarded them as the apple of his eye. Do you remember on the one lesson we talked about how they were like, Um, like little baby eagles under eagle's wings. We talked about just how that picture of how he cared for them. He goes on to say, He found him in a desert and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. It's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of being cared for by God, of being watched over about um, no foreign God, no danger of idol worship. But then the second stage that he begins to illustrate is the stage of ingratitude. It's what happens when people forget that this blessing that they have from God is really a gift of his presence. And as we've already said, sadly, it's the same prosperity that comes with blessing that causes people to become ungrateful to God. He goes on in verse 15 and he says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked And you grew fat and stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. So they forgot that their provisions were from God's own hand and not from their own doing. Their blessings were a love gift to them because he was their God and they were his people. But when they were fat and happy, they became ungrateful to God and they rejected their rock and savior and turned instead to worship idols. So the next stage is idolatry. When you've had blessing and you've become ungrateful, you turn to idol worship. You know, as people, we're created to worship. It's just how God's made us. We're created in his image. We're created with a natural desire to worship. And and if we aren't worshiping the one true God, we're going to worship something or someone else. You know this because if you have people in your life who don't know God, you'll find that there's something there that's worshipped above and beyond anything else. We had a young girl living with us last fall, and she um, worshipped sports. I don't know how else to say it. She was obsessed with sports and obsessed with fantasy football and obsessed with players, and it's all she thought about morning, noon, and night was what was happening with her sports teams. It was interesting. She doesn't worship the one true God, but her world is consumed with sports. But that's how it is for people. It's sports or it's politics or it's a career or it's a position or wealth or recreation or fitness or food or even family. All of those things can be good things. But when they consume that place of worship, when they take residence in that place of worship in your life, it becomes idol worship. Even those of us who worship the one true God, as we've learned this year, we have to be vigilant against allowing those things to take too big a place in our own hearts. We've been challenged this year that, that we, don't, we have to walk by faith instead of by sight. And the thing that's so tempting about idol worship is that they're all things that can be seen and touched and experienced. And so it's easy to worship those things where when we're worshiping God, we're worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we don't always see and touch and experience things like we do in this world. And so the temptation is always there for us to walk by sight instead of by faith. 
But God has been teaching us this year, no, we need to walk by faith and not by sight. So what happens is that Israel actually turns to worshiping demons. In chapter 32, verses 16 through 18, he says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the rock who gave you birth. Idolatry in the Bible is always compared to adultery in marriage. It's this profound violation of affection. And so you know when adultery comes into a marriage, it's deeply wounding because this is the person you've been most intimate with in your life. And here's an intimacy of relationship with God. And idol worship is like adultery to him. And it brings out his discipline. God disciplines those who worship idols. That takes us to the next part of the cycle, discipline. Now, the purpose of God's discipline is always to restore, to revitalize, or to cause repentance. It's never to destroy. Discipline is an act of love. It's, it's an act of love that's meant to turn people away from destructive behaviors and turn them back to God. And you know this with your kids, right? Right? You discipline your kids out of love. You tell them not to do these behaviors because it's going to be the death of them. And your discipline is meant to turn them back to what's right and true. In verse 19 19 through 21, it says, The Lord saw it, their sin, and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith, faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have promote, provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So because the Lord has been moved to jealousy because they've been worshiping demon gods, He says that he's going to actually make them jealous for his love by using various Gentile nations to discipline them. Now, if you fast forward into Israel's history, there's a pattern that happens here. Every time Israel turns to idol worship and forgets their love for the one true God, God allows them to be carried away into captivity by one of the Gentile nations. They get They get removed from the land. They get swept away into slavery. And what happens at those times is that the people who enslave them are harsh with them. And they end up then begging God to free them from this oppression and restore them back to their land and into fellowship with him. So he allowed Assyria and Babylon to capture them. And so these nations, they thought they were strong and proud and so smart because they got to come in and capture Israel. But then... At a later time, God would punish those nations because they were too harsh with his people. But during the time that they were in captivity, they would cry out in helplessness. They would would feel their powerlessness. So helplessness is the next thing that happens. And this is what it says in verses 36 through 38. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. 
and there is none remaining, bond or free. And then he will say, where are the gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So when the people finally recognize their state of helplessness apart from God and they cry out to him in desperation, then he is moved by his compassion to rescue them. And that brings us to deliverance. Verses 39 through 41, he says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear... As I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Israel's seasons of deliverance followed by, were followed by exile and repentance. There was a cycle, like I said, that just kind of continued. Idling worship, worship idols, swept away into captivity, crying out to God for, in their helplessness, God's compassion to come in and deliver them, and then restoring them to blessing, right back to blessing again. In fact, um, there's going to be a day of judgment that's still future to us when the Lord is going to return. He's going to judge the Gentile nations. And in Zechariah, it talks about that there's also going to be a day when Israel sees their Messiah and repents and is converted to faith. And he talks about how that's going to be this great day of blessing. So do you see the cycle? It's, it's a cycle that many nations have, have fallen into over the years, but it's so evident in Israel's history as we look at the Bible. And Moses closes his song then with an appeal. So he, as he prepares this song that has their whole pattern for history laid out before them, he then appeals at the end of this song and he says this, he says, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. He's saying, look, This is your life. Your very life depends on the word of God. It depends on you living and anchoring your life to this word. The word of God is the life of God's people. The word of God is our life. It's how we know him. It's how we know Jesus. It's how we believe. It's how we have wisdom for our life. His word is our life. Now, I want you to think about your own life for just a moment, and I I wanted to see if you can identify where you might be in this cycle. So if you're in a cycle of blessing, that means you're in a time of giving thanks to God. You're acknowledging that everything is a good gift from him, that he's been the provider of your needs, that he has been loving and generous to you. In a cycle of blessing, you're remaining humble. You know that you are a recipient of grace, that nothing has come by your good works. All praise and glory goes to God. There's a relationship of intimacy in those times of blessing, an acknowledgement about his goodness in your life, even in times of difficulty. When you move into a season of ingratitude, it can be slippery. You might not always recognize it, but some things that might be stirring in you might be like, have you had some losses recently that are generating some grumbling in your life? Maybe even you're thinking you've had some successes 
And you're starting to think, well, actually, you're smarter or more strategic than you imagined. <laughs> Look at me, how smart I am. That can begin a, a season of ingratitude. Or you have a health crisis, and you begin to question God's goodness, or a financial crisis, or a job crisis, or you're struggling to walk by sight instead of by faith. And you're in the struggle, and you're starting to feel ingrateful, ungrateful. Maybe you're in a season of idolatry, and maybe you don't know it. You say, well, how do I know if I'm in a season of idolatry? One good thing to do is just check your passions. What are you most passionate about? And then check your checkbook. Where does your money go? Where does your time go? Where do you spend yourself or your resources? Where do you give your love first and foremost? What substitutes have come into your prayer life or into your times of worship? What captures your heart more than God? Maybe you're in a time of discipline. Maybe you're experiencing some consequences for sin or some difficulties that have come out of choices that you have made. Now, if you're in a time of discipline, it's actually a blessing because it reveals that you actually belong to God. God disciplines his children. Judgment is reserved for the unbelieving world, but discipline is for God's own children. You know, we don't discipline other people's children, right? We discipline our own children because we love them. Discipline can be a blessing because it can also be an affirmation that you belong to God. God doesn't let you stray very far before he comes and wraps his arms around you, points you back. And sometimes that hurts a little bit. If you find yourself in a season of discomfort and suffering because of your own sin or disobedience, the best thing to do is just repent and to turn back to him as quickly as possible. Maybe you're in a time of helplessness where you're just feeling overwhelmed with your life. You feel that you can't go on, that the pain is too great, that problems are overwhelming. Times of helplessness are times to surrender to God and to trust him and to, to allow him who holds your future to guide your steps and to come and cry out and just say to him, Lord, help me, help me, help me. It's my favorite prayer every morning is, Lord, help me. And he helps in such amazing ways. Maybe you're in a time of deliverance. Deliverance might be that you have found this year in our study that you really understand things about God that you never have, that you're challenged to turn your life over to him, to trust him in ways you've never trusted him before. You've, uh, you're, you've identified with the Israelites, and you've recognized that you've been living in a state of bondage, in sin, and now you're experiencing sort of an exodus or freedom of a stronghold being broken or a new life of, of faith rising up in, in you. That's a miracle. That's a miracle of deliverance, and that's a blessing. That brings you back into intimacy with God and fellowship with God and excitement about what you've learned. It's a blessing. Now, do you want to know how to stop the cycle? How to stop going from ingratitude to idolatry to all of these dark things that, that aren't so pleasant? The secret, you can stop the cycle in your life by remaining surrendered to God in an attitude of gratitude. See, it all starts with ingratitude, which if you remember... That was the problem with the Israelites. They were always grumbling. They were always discontented. They were always whining. They didn't like manna. They didn't like quail. They, didn't, they wanted you know, to go back to Egypt and have all the blessings. They forgot about the slavery and the bondage. And so ingratitude is what begins to make us susceptible to idols because we have this sense of we, we want more. We want God to do more. 
We want more than our needs met. We want our greeds met, our wants met. And they were ungrateful at the core. But gratitude will flow naturally out of your life as you stay anchored to the word. Because remember, Moses has said the word is your life. And so if you stay anchored to the word of God, your heart will remain grateful to him. You will have a proper perspective. And what I love about this is is that as you remain tethered to the word of God, and as that intimacy gives you life and truth and wisdom, instruction, you also will speak more words back to God, which is prayer. And this kind of both and, this being anchored on the word of God and speaking words back to God becomes a relationship where he speaks to you and you speak to him. And you can see now that's a relationship like Moses shared with God, a relationship of communication and intimacy and obedience and faith. So what can you do to remain grateful? Here's just a few simple things I could suggest. First is continue to worship. When we sing songs of worship like we just did when we started tonight, we're recounting words of truth about God. We're singing out loud his character, his promises, his personhood. We're reminding ourselves of who he is, and we do it with music so it's easy to remember. That's an important part of remaining grateful is continuing to renew our minds on who he is and sing songs about it. Another thing is attend church regularly. Find a church. Make it your home. Show up. Even when you don't feel like it, just showing up is half the battle. And there's always blessing and encouragement and teaching and people and community and all these different aspects of things you probably can't even anticipate. The third thing is find a place to serve him in community. A place where you're contributing your gifts and you're hanging out with other people and you're doing things together in relationship with others. You'll be encouraged and you'll be an encourager to someone else. The fourth thing is praise God for the transforming work that he's doing in you. Even this year, as you think about what you've learned and how you've grown, notice it. Take time to pay attention. God, what are you doing in my heart? Praise him for that. Thank him for that. Notice it. Be grateful. Think frequently about who you were before you met the Lord and who you would be today if you'd never met the Lord. And be grateful in remembering what your salvation has meant in shaping your life and who you've become. Pray every day and always begin your prayers with praise and thanksgiving. I, I love to pray first by looking up at who God is and just telling him who I know him to be. Then looking inward and confessing sin, hard attitudes, hard heart, things that God brings to light. I don't always know until he brings it to light, but confess it to him. Then looking back and thanking him for how faithful he's been the last 24 hours of my life and beyond. And then looking forward and just laying my requests at his feet and saying, Lord, help me enter into this life with me. Show me the way. Guide me, lead me, give me wisdom. And do a few miracles along the way. That'd be great. There's always miracles to ask for. And then the last thing is just keep learning. Keep staying in the word of God. God's word is, is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces bone and marrow. It gets into our hearts, and it changes us. And it's so powerful to do what we do every Tuesday night, to just be in the word together faithfully. So keep on keeping on. Well, now we're just going to talk about Moses' passing. Can you believe it? We're at the end of his life. Moses is not going to enter the promised land. You remember why he struck the rock. 
He struck it instead of spoke to it. It was an act of rebellion and anger. And God held him accountable and said, you didn't believe me and do what I said, so you're not going to get to go into the land. Now that might appear to be a harsh discipline for a man who was so faithful for so many years, who had endured so much suffering and hardship for over 40 years, but it actually was a very special grace. Because you remember the song that Moses just wrote? There was nothing but heartache and struggle and disobedience and discipline in that song. That was a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the promised land. Because the people are going to be grumbling and they're going to be unfaithful. And so instead of Moses going into the land with his people, fighting all the battles and seeing the people fail miserably in sin, God is going to bring him home. He's going to bring him to the promised land that is his promised land. He's going to bring him into his inheritance in heaven. Moses is going to be spared. Imagine how it would break his heart to be 120 years old and still dealing with a stiff neck and obstinate people. So instead, he's gathering up, up with his forefathers. But before he goes, he's allowing him the privilege of looking at the land, of seeing it with his eyes, seeing the land of milk and honey, seeing the inheritance that he has been promising. Now, I have a picture of the promised land from the top of Mount Nebo. So Nebo, this is the place where Moses likely stood and looked out over the land and listened to what the Lord told him as he was enjoying this view. Verse 30, chapter 34, verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. This is about 2,600 feet above sea level. He's getting to see this whole view of the land that's going to become the promised land. And then it says in verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him, God buried him, in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Isn't that amazing? God buried him. Death is an appointment, not an accident. And Moses knew he was going to die. He sees the promised land just six miles away from touching it. And the Lord buries him in a secret place. And I'm sure this was to protect the Israelites from worshiping his grave and making Moses an idol. Now, wouldn't, have been, wouldn't it have been such a sadness for Moses to have spent his entire life pointing the people to faith and then have him worship his grave as an idol in place of worshiping God after his death? At 120 years old, Moses had lived four, three generations of 40 years. And what a blessing. It says that when he died, he had his eyesight intact and he, was, he had enough strength to climb a mountain. I wonder if God didn't keep him with that strength and that good eyesight so he could get up to the top of Mount Nebo and see the promised land. Because that's amazing. Who at 120 is vigor not abated and eyesight still str strong? That was a blessing for Moses. The, the Lord surely gave him that special provision. 
And now Moses is going to enter into heaven with his forefathers. His life was a life of victory. It says that for 40 days, 30 days, the people wept. And then as God was bearing the workmen, the work continued through Joshua. That Joshua would now be filled with the Holy Spirit. That he would have now God's wisdom to lead the people. But Joshua's relationship was always very different than Moses. Moses' relationship with God was so special. In verse 10, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Amazing. Joshua surely wrote that. Moses had passed. But you know what's so fun about God? Moses never got to set foot in the promised land. But fast forward to Jesus' day when Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration and James and John and Peter are there. Moses is there with Elijah several thousand years forward into the future. It's written in Matthew 17, And in verse 2, well, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, standing on the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, the truth is is that the greatest legacy of your life is your legacy of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest legacy of your life. Now, we look at Moses' life. There's some things that are really his legacy. He, first of all, was a faithful servant. He has a legacy. When we think of Moses, we think faithful servant. He was humble. He walked faithfully with God. He spoke to God as a man speaks with a friend. He spent time with God. He listened to God, and he obeyed God's commands. He was an amazing example of obedience. The second thing is that Moses was really devoted to his people. He was willing on two occasions to lay down his very life to spare the Israelites from God's judgment. He always yearned for their best. Even when they were at their worst, Moses always yearned for their best. He spoke words of blessing over them time and time again. The third thing is that he really interceded before the throne of God in prayer for the Israelites. Over and over again, he pleaded with God to spare them judgment. But the fourth legacy is that he is a Christ-like example. So like Jesus, both Jesus and Moses were born into godly homes during a very difficult time in Jewish history when both of their lives were threatened as babies. Moses gave up the riches of Egypt and became poor in order to share spiritual riches with Israel. Jesus left the riches of heaven and became poor in order to share spiritual riches with the whole world. Moses was rejected by his people time and time again. Jesus was rejected by his people. The first time he came, the second time when he comes, he won't be rejected. He'll come in triumph. Jesus, as we know, was meek and humble. Moses was also known as meek and humble. Both Moses and Jesus finished the work that God gave them to do. It was finished. Before Moses died, he trained up Joshua to carry on the Lord's work. 
Before Jesus died, he trained up his disciples to spread the good news of the gospel to all nations. When Moses was at the top of the mountain and he met with God and he came back, his face shone with the glory of God. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, his whole being shone because he is the glory of God. Both Moses and Jesus were mighty in power and performed awesome deeds. But the difference is that Moses was a servant of God and Jesus is the son of God. Moses' life encourages us to be more like Jesus in all things. If you have time sometime, go over to Hebrews 11, which is the great hall of faith. And what you'll see there is that it's clear that Moses understood that his life was meant to be a foreshadow of Christ, that what he experienced pointed forward to the Messiah. His legacy of faith was not only about the relationship he shared with this God that he spoke to face to face, but it was also in his ability to look forward to a time when the Messiah would come and he had some sense of understanding that the law and the sacrificial system was going to be fulfilled, that it was a foreshadow for the Messiah's coming. And that is talked about in Hebrews 11. So Moses looked forward and he believed by faith in the Christ who would come and we stand on the other side of the cross and we look back at the Christ who came and who will come again by faith. So what is the legacy of your life? What is your legacy of faith? What are you doing to pass your legacy of faith on to others? And how is that reflective of your relationship with Jesus? In the last couple of weeks, Two people who are very near and dear to me passed away. Both of them had very different legacies. One was my mother-in-law. She had some sense of intellectual understanding about God and about Jesus. She went to church occasionally. She had an amazing life of accomplishment and education and many, many gifts. She died at 92 years old a couple of weeks ago. But there's no legacy of faith. There's no transformed life. There was no, it was never spoken of and never lived out in her life. Her legacy is in human accomplishments. My friend Ellie, who passed away a few weeks ago, lived most of her life not knowing God until five years ago she met the Lord and her life was radically transformed and she was zealous for God and it just oozed out of her. She was a bright light in the last five years of her life. She only got to live to be 57. My mother-in-law lived to be 92. But their testimonies of their faith are so different. And Ellie's is so powerful for Jesus. So our legacy isn't about the number of our years or our human accomplishments. It's about who we become in Christ and how he shines through us into this world. The legacy of our lives is formed by our relationship with God. And I think that's what we can really take away from Moses' life. He left us an amazing legacy of faith. And we're so grateful. So would you stand and let me pray and send you out to your groups to discuss. Father, we come before you just with gratitude and oh, we want to stay in that place of gratitude. We want to say thank you. Thank you for what you've taught us through this whole journey through the Pentateuch. Thank you for what you've revealed to us, what you've warned us about, what you've challenged us deeply in our souls over. Thank you for what you revealed about your holiness and your majesty and how we must believe your word and obey it and live our lives based on the truth and the wisdom that you provide for us. Help us, Lord, to remain people who are grateful 
who count our blessings, who look to you in awe and worship, and who remain close to you through your Son, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so grateful for what we've learned this year. We pray that we'll not forget the things that you've taught us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.